True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 26, The Murder of Michael van Eyck. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon subscribers. A huge thank you to Marcus Erwi, Ethan Page, and Jerry McCall for supporting the show through Patreon. I really appreciate the support, and it goes a long way to helping to expand my research capabilities and purchase new equipment. If you're able to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link to each platform in the show notes. As always, I appreciate any form of support, and sharing of episodes and recommending the podcast is just as helpful and important. From the day I started this podcast, I've had requests for the case that I'm covering in today's episode. I would say that besides the Gert van Royen case, it's probably the most requested case so far. The reason I took a while to get around to it is because there are so many elements involved in this case that I really wanted to get it right and do the story justice. Most importantly for the victim of this horrendous crime and his family, but also for the awareness value that the story holds in so many respects. I will warn you up front that if you're not familiar with this case, it's probably one of the worst in terms of injury to the victim that you'll ever hear. I will try and give you warnings throughout before I get to the gruesome stuff, but the actions of these perpetrators really do form a theme that's difficult to avoid. So if you're having a rough day in lockdown and not feeling particularly strong, I recommend you pick another day to listen to this episode. Another trigger warning is one that I struggled with in particular, and that is that there are graphic descriptions of abuse to animals in this episode. I will also warn you up front that I am going to be discussing the occult, Satanism, and the reality of how such things may or may not have impacted this case. I will only ever do so from a factual perspective and as it relates to the case at hand, or crime in general. I do understand that we all have our own opinions on things like religion and spiritualism, and I respect that. My predominant sources for this episode include the book Grave Murder by Jana van der Merwe, the podcast episode of Profiler Africa, in which Gerard Labaskagny discusses violent fantasies in relation to this case, as well as the chapter on Shanae van Heerden in the book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber. In today's episode, I'll be focusing on the victim, as I usually do, but I'll also be focusing quite significantly on the perpetrators and their backgrounds, perhaps more than usual. The reason I want to do this is not to take anything away from the victim or the pain that his family still struggles with today, but to try and really break down this crime. Because simply due to its nature, 
it really can be a horror story that no one wants to dig too deeply into. But I think it's important that we do. Just as with topics like paedophilia, we might not want to learn about these people, and it might be easier for us to just label them monsters and walk away. But doing that doesn't bring us any closer to stopping the next so-called monster. So let's get into episode 26, The Murder of Michael van Eyck. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Michael van Eyck was born to his parents, Henriette and Nas van Eyck, on the 14th of August, 1987. He was the fourth of five children, and the only boy, so naturally he was doted on, not only by his parents, but also by his sisters. Michael held a special place in the van Eyck family. For his older sisters, he was the steadfast one in the family, the one they knew they could always look to if they needed someone. To his younger sister, just a year younger than him, he was a friend and confidant. They'd quite literally grown up together, experiencing the world in the same stages at the same times. To his mother, Michael was the son she'd always dreamt of having, and as his father worked away from home a lot, he was her helper and protector. Michael had achieved a black belt in karate, and he told his parents that this gave him a feeling of empowerment. Michael's father was extremely proud of his son, who'd worked hard to qualify as an electrician and was working towards an engineering qualification. He just started his first job at Beatrix Goldmine. By all accounts, Michael was not a social butterfly. Although he was friendly and well-liked by all who knew him, he didn't spend his downtime drinking and going to club like most of the other young people his age in town. Michael had recently broken up with a long-term girlfriend, and having just started his first job, his life was on an upward curve. Although it had taken some time for him to get over the split with his ex, he was now ready to start dating again, and he'd even registered a profile on a dating app called To Go. Michael lived in a flatlet on his parents' property. He had his own vehicle, a silver-grey Peugeot 207, which his parents had purchased for him, but he planned to start paying them back for. And where he used to spend most of his time studying, he now spent a lot of it working. On that Saturday, the 2nd of April, though, Michael had plans. He'd withdrawn a thousand rand from his bank account, the first withdrawal he'd ever made from his first salary. An eight-year-old girl stands in front of her grandfather's church congregation. She's shaking with fear as the congregant's eyes bore down on her. She's scared of what is about to happen, but she's more afraid of these eyes looking at her. 
if they stare at her for much longer, they might see inside her. Her grandfather did, she thought, and that is why she was up there. Her demons had to be exercised, Ted said. They were the reason that she drew the strange pictures. As his chanting prayer became faster and louder, and the convulsions began, she knew that she never should have told them about her imaginary friends. Shanae van Heerden was born into a crumbling marriage. Her mother, Charmaine, and her father, Jacques, had already had two children before her, and their relationship was on the rocks. Jacques regularly accused Charmaine of cheating on him, and by the time she was ready to divorce him, she found out that she was pregnant with Charmaine. It's alleged that Charmaine found it impossible to bond with her new baby, seeing her as a tether to a relationship that she didn't want. She would tear up baby photographs of Charmaine, and although she didn't neglect her, it was clear that she hadn't bonded with her the way she had with her two older children. Eventually, her parents' marriage dissolved, and Charmaine took her three children and moved out. In the years that followed, she would be involved in several live-in relationships with men, who Charnay would say were aggressive and abusive to both the children and their mother. Charnay's father had married again to a lady called Tanya. Charnay decided to try living with them for a while. Charnay struggled throughout her childhood. Her love for drawing had always been evident. But very early on, she started to draw dark scenes. She also started talking to people that others couldn't see. When her parents inquired, she told them that the man's name was Azazel. She would later also start talking about another friend that was invisible to others, called Norman. It was that first imaginary friend, or whatever it was, that caused concern. Azazel is the name of a goat demon, or fallen angel, described in the Book of Enoch, as well as some ancient Jewish texts. Shanae was eight years old when she started talking about Azazel. I think you would agree with me that it would be strange for an eight-year-old to know the name of a demon. She was the granddaughter of a pastor, so it's entirely possible that she'd heard the name mentioned somewhere and just liked the sound of it. This was the reason that her grandfather pulled her up in front of his congregation. That moment of being the focus of the negative attention of such a huge crowd stuck with her. Shanae was terrified of the dark as a child, a fear which is not uncommon among young children. In an attempt to allay her fears, her mother told her that her dolls came alive in the dark. This thought terrified Shanae so much that she would tie her dolls up and put tape over their mouths before she went to bed each night. Her behaviour would worsen, and at the age of ten, she attempted to stab her stepmother with a knife. Her father and stepmother 
put the behavior down to the difficulties she was experiencing. And it is noted that Shane was put on mood-stabilizing medication while she was in primary school. She didn't stay on the medication for very long, though. Shane started an activity with her father during this time that would impact the rest of her life. He started to take her hunting with him. And if they shot buck, or hares, it would be Shane's job to skin them. She described this initial moment of sliding a knife between the skin and tissue of an animal and separating the two as the most fulfilling experience of her life. She would later say that the only thing that came close was when she self-harmed by cutting into her arms and legs. Shanae could not get enough of the act of skinning and practiced at every opportunity she got. She would collect dead animals in the felt and skin them, or skin the frozen rats they fed to their pet snakes. When Shanae was 12 years old, she became involved with a rather rough crowd, and she started to do drugs. One night, when she was under the influence, an older man who she considered a friend took advantage of her condition and raped her. It appears that she never told her parents about the rape, but her sister did seem to know. Without counselling or any justice for the crime committed against her, this experience only added to her already extremely troubled mind. When Shanae was 15, her mother moved to New Zealand with her new husband and left her with her father. She had a relatively good relationship with her father and stepmother, and they did their best to help her through her troubles, hoping that it was all just teenage angst and that she would move through it with love and support. Shanae always chose older people as friends, and after her mother immigrated, she became involved with a 22-year-old man. This man and his friends were involved in activities that were described as satanic in nature, and although Shanae was deeply in love with the man, she allegedly showed no interest in his satanic activities. She chose to focus her interest instead on other areas of the occult, such as voodoo and wicca. Shanae's relationship with this man was allegedly abusive, both physically and emotionally. At the age of 16, Shanae dropped out of mainstream school and instead started at college to study art and graphic design. She moved in with her sister and her father said that at this stage she seemed to be turning a corner. She was no longer hanging out with the rough crowd, she was no longer using drugs, and she excelled at her studies. He breathed a sigh of relief as he hoped that, just maybe, his little girl might be okay. After qualifying, Shanae managed to get a job as a graphic designer, and she was a star employee. At this time, she entered into a relationship with a man called Warren. The pair got along really well, and he would later say that he had no idea that Shanae had such a dark past. She'd come across as completely ordinary, 
His family loved Shanae too, saying that she was the sweetest girl Warren had ever dated, and they wished he'd married her. Well, at the time, they wished that. Warren had a friend named Roy, who would play a major role in future events. Roy said that from the moment he was introduced to Shanae, there was something about her that he didn't like. Although everyone else thought she was the loveliest person, Roy felt that he was seeing something that the others weren't. He claims to have a deeper sight. He says that he doesn't just see people, but he also sees their energy. And Shanae, according to him, had a very dark energy. Roy also said that through this second sight, he sometimes gets information about people and events, and something was bugging him about Shanae. He was convinced that she was cheating on Warren. One day, he pulled her aside and demanded to know who Norman was. He kept getting that name when Shanae was around, and he thought it was the name of a man that she'd been dating on the side. While he demanded to know who this Norman was, he said the colour drained from Shanae's face, and she spat at him that he should never, ever read her again. Norman, Roy would later find out, was Shanae's imaginary friend. While most people leave their imaginary friends behind in childhood, she had it. She still spoke to Norman and felt his presence, and now, somehow, so had Roy. Very soon after this incident, quite inexplicably, Shanae broke up with Warren. She gave no explanation, she simply ended it, and they never saw each other again. While Shanae had still been with Warren, they'd been at a party at Roy's house, and she had been introduced to another man who would play an even greater role in her future. 24-year-old Martins van der Merwe. Martins was another Valcom resident who had never quite felt like he fitted in. Although he didn't have the difficult family life that Shanae had initially experienced, he'd struggled through his childhood. Martins was one of two boys born to Salomi and Francois van der Merwe, a well-respected Valcom couple. His parents had divorced quite early in his life, but he never said that this had much of an impact on him. He still had good relationships with both his mother and father, and he was an extremely bright child. He flew through his academics and was the top student in his primary school. Martins was dealing with a mental illness, though, that would eventually become debilitating before he received treatment. He recalled having his first visual and audible hallucinations at the age of six. A dragon-like creature appeared to him and told him that he was giving him the world as a gift, but one day he would return to take it back. From a child's perspective, and not understanding that this wasn't real, Martin said that he felt very special, as though he'd been chosen for something bigger than an ordinary life. He would later say that he spent the rest of his life trying to recreate that feeling. 
Martin's hallucinations became more and more severe until his behavior at school and at home was so out of hand that he was referred to a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with schizophrenia at the age of 14. While schizophrenia and the hallucinations and delusions it brings can be debilitating, it can also be managed through medication and psychotherapy. And Martin's team of doctors immediately began working to find a combination of treatments that would work for him. His father Francois was said to have been extremely supportive during this time and spent all of his savings and even his pension fund to get his son the best treatment he could. His mother seemed to take a step back from the side of her son, and while she still played a maternal role in his life, she never embraced the path to his treatments or accepted his illness the way his father did. The treatment plan worked really well for Martins, and he was able to go into remission for most of his symptoms. The only one that remained was the occasional bouts of aggression he experienced. Martin's family lived on a small holding, and they had several dogs that ran loose on the grounds. Stray cats would enter the property and fall foul of the pack of dogs. It was Martin's job to clean up the remains. He would later say that he'd been fascinated by the dead cats, even leaving bodies aside so that he could observe the decomposition process. He recalls finding a live cat on the small holding one day and picking it up. Without thinking, he says, he snapped the creature's neck. He had no idea why he'd done it, but the idea of death was fascinating to him. As Martins aged, he learned to deal with, with the symptoms of his schizophrenia, but he had dropped out of school as his diagnosis had been leaked to the small Valcom community, and the bullying he experienced was more than he could handle. He helped his father in his carpentry business and would eventually start a furniture-making business of his own from his father's workshop. He was doing so well that he decided, against his father and doctor's wishes, to go off his medication. This is not uncommon for people living with schizophrenia, as the medication has side effects, as it does its job and people start to feel that they can manage without it. Often people will attempt to go off it. Sometimes, depending on the severity of the condition, People can live productive lives without their medication. But more often than not, it sends them back on a downward spiral. Around the time that Shawnee was dating Warren, Martins had decided to move in with his friend Roy. He wanted some freedom, and Roy was happy to have his good friend stay with him. Interestingly, considering Roy's claims of having an insight into people's auras and energy, he only had good things to say about Martins. He was well aware of his schizophrenia, but felt that his friend was a generally calm and friendly guy, and he had no second thoughts about living with him. The roommate's arrangement worked really well, until Shawnee broke up with Warren. One night, 
Roy and Martins held a party at the house. Shanae van Heerden came with another group, and soon she and Martins were chatting, and by the end of the night, they were kissing. By December 2010, 20-year-old Shanae van Heerden and 24-year-old Martins van Amava were in a relationship. From the outside, the pair seemed fantastically suited. They were very happy together and seemed to bring out the best in each other. Their respective families were very pleased with the relationship. Shanae's father said that Martins was a quiet, polite and respectful young man and he really liked how well he treated his daughter. Martin's family also had no adverse feelings towards Shanae. She seemed lovely and a great fit for their son. Shanae was spending a lot of time at Roy's house, and although he was happy for his friend, he still had niggling doubts about her, and he soon started to see things that seemed really strange. One morning, he walked past the bathroom and saw shirtless Martins brushing his teeth. His friend had a deep cut on his chest, and it didn't look self-inflicted. When he questioned him about it, Martins brushed it off and said that he and Shanae liked to try different things in the bedroom, and it was nothing to worry about. Roy was worried, though. Martins started to change. He barely spoke to him, or anyone else anymore. Shanae, too, had completely withdrawn. Although this is not entirely abnormal for a young, new relationship, where a couple is completely enamoured with each other, this somehow seemed darker. The rapid progression of darkness that was forming between Shanae and Martins would become evident when police would later read the text messages between the pair. While other couples might bond over shared interests like sports or liking the same types of foods, Shanae and Martins found that they shared other interests. They both felt entirely different from everyone else. They had both experimented with the killing and skinning of animals as children. They both self-harmed. The couple also started to research various religions and areas of the occult. While this would later be described as an interest in Satanism, no evidence was ever found of this. Shanae's interest was mainly in serial killers, and she had many books on some of the world's most infamous killers. Essentially, what the couple did was take ideas from different religions and practices, add in some of their own inventions, and develop their own very specific ideas about the world. The couple loved to watch the television series Dexter, which is about a man who is a serial killer, and he kills people who've evaded the justice system. Soon they started calling each other Dexter and Lumen. Lumen was a female character from Dexter, who started killing with the main character to take revenge against a group of men who'd gang-raped her. Shanae and Martins switched between a few different names that they had for each other, including Goddess and My Dark Prince. 
They made no secrets of these names, and even used them in social media posts, and saved each other's telephone numbers on their cell phones under these names. The progression in this relationship from what we could term normal to a place where they were essentially building their own world together was extremely fast. On the 17th of December, Martin sent a message to Shanae as part of a thread of goodnight texts that they were sending each other. It read, quote, Let sweet intoxicating sleep carry you to our world. You'll find me at the gates, the one with the veiled wings and no eyes. You'll recognize the smile. End quote. The couple had been messaging in Afrikaans all this time, but inexplicably, around this time, they switched to English and continued to text in English consistently thereafter. It was thought that this was an indication of a turning point in their relationship. Shanae and Martins, by their union, were becoming who they'd always wanted to be as individuals. When they were together, they could express their deepest, darkest secrets. Things that they'd never admitted to anyone else before. The liberation that this must have brought for them must have been intoxicating. Finally, they'd found someone who not only understood what lay beneath the facade that they put on for the world, but they felt the same. Just over a month after meeting, Shanae and Martins moved in together. They moved into a flatlet in Valcom in an area called St. Helena. Shanae continued to text, phone and visit with her family. And if you look at the messages she sends to Martins, and then those she sends to her father and other family members, the difference is like night and day. It's honestly like two different people type the messages. The messages to her father and sister are light and happy, ending with loveys and kisses. And straight afterwards, she would send some of the darkest, most strange messages to Martins. Moving in together changed everything. The pair went from talking about their desires to finding ways to carry them out in the privacy of their flatlet and elsewhere. I'll give you a warning here that things are about to get a little gruesome. It would emerge that the dark fantasies that Martins and Charnay had been discussing were a little different but boiled down to the same thing. Martin's fantasy was to kill someone, preferably with a knife, and Shanae's fantasy was to skin the face and stitch close the mouth of a human being. The pair started with cats. They purchased two cats from a pet shop and practiced on them. They filmed these incidents. In February 2011, Shanae and Martins decided to up the stakes. They'd originally thought about going to the SPCA and adopting a dog as their next victim. But Shanae would say that she felt bad taking a dog that had been abused its whole life and giving it hope for a future, only to kill it. Shanae 
they decided instead to go straight on to killing a human being. There is evidence that the planning of their first murder already started in February 2011, because Martins mentioned it in text messages to Chanet. They would later say that they couldn't find the right person, so they left the idea for a while. Towards the end of March 2011, Shanae van Heerden opened a profile on the dating app to go, and she made contact with Michael van Eyck. She would later say that it felt really weird flirting with another guy while her boyfriend sat next to her. She played the role to a T, though. She was interested in a date with Michael, she claimed, and she knew the perfect place where they could be alone. Valcom Cemetery. Michael had initially balked at the idea, who wouldn't, but it seems that this pretty dark-haired girl was enough of a draw card that he could be convinced to go there. Perhaps he thought that maybe he could just pick her up there, or they could spend a little bit of time there and then they could go somewhere else. That, of course, was not what Charnay had in mind. In the run-up to the arranged date, she made lists of things she would need to take with. Blades, knives, rope, a blanket, rocks, candles. She chose her outfit, a little white dress that she'd been wearing in the video in which she killed the cats. As the hour crept closer, Charnay said that she felt nervous but not because she was planning on taking a man's life, but because she was worried that she would have to make small talk with Michael, and she wasn't good at that. Back at Michael's home, he had dinner with his parents. He explained that he was going to be taking a girl on a date that night. He would be fetching her from her home in St. Helena, and then they would be going to the movies. Clearly, there was no way he could tell his parents that he was going to be meeting a strange girl in a graveyard. Finishing dinner, he went down to his flatlet, showered and changed into denim jeans, a blue-grey t-shirt and sneakers. He climbed in his car, said goodbye to his parents and left the property. His mother noted that he had turned in the opposite direction of where he said he would be collecting the girl. She thought nothing more of it, though, and settled in for a Saturday evening with her husband. Shanae and Martins were ready. They had walked to the cemetery and laid out a blanket behind a temple building in the Jewish portion of the cemetery. They opened a bottle of wine and put out glasses that they had brought with. If it wasn't surrounded by graves, it would have been the perfect date scene. It's only had to be good enough to convince Michael, though. They arranged to meet at nine o'clock. At twenty to nine, records indicate that Charnay switched her cell phone off, and she headed to the entrance of the cemetery to wait. At five to nine, Michael pulled into the cemetery parking lot. Though we'll never know what he was thinking in that moment, I have no doubt that he was still having second thoughts. 
but within seconds. Charnay was at his car door, smiling and sweet and perfectly innocent in her white dress. Her long, flowing hair would have disarmed him, and as she touched him on his shoulder and smiled coyly, all of his reservations would likely have disappeared. Under the light of the bleak April moon, Michael walked to his death as he followed Charnay to the area she'd set up. Charnay would later say that she was relieved when Michael took charge of the conversation and she poured them some wine. She had very little interest in keeping the facade going for too long, though, and soon she gave the signal. She leaned in to kiss Michael. As their lips touched, Michael heard a noise behind him. Before he could turn or react, Martin's Fandamava had planted his hunting knife into his back. Michael was not going down without a fight, though, and at one stage, after having stabbed him several times, Martin's called for Charnay to come and help him because Michael would not stay down. Charnay, who had been watching from behind the temple building, grabbed another knife and stabbed Michael in the back three times. This added to the other 29 stab wounds that Martins had inflicted, was more than Michael could be. He dropped to his knees and allegedly told Martins to just kill me. Martins claims that he gave Michael the opportunity to say a prayer, and then he slit his throat. They then dragged Michael's body to the blanket, and Charnay started her part of the fantasy. The couple removed Michael's right arm and hand, left foot, and decapitated him. They placed these parts in bags that they had brought with them. They then dragged the rest of the body over to an area near some gravestones and set to work, digging a hole to bury them in. They only had spoons and knives to dig with, so they ended up cutting the body into more pieces so that they could dig a smaller hole. They then cleaned up the area as best they could and loaded the bags into the boot of Michael's car. Charnay would later say that Martins had so much adrenaline pumping through his body that he was unable to drive, so although she had little driving experience, she drove the car back to their flat. They offloaded the bags containing Michael's body parts and then drove the car into the CBD, where they dumped it at a taxi rank with the key still in the ignition. They'd hoped that it would be stolen. They made their way back to the flat on foot. On Sunday the 3rd of April, Ephraim Morolong was carrying out his duties as supervisor of the maintenance crew at Valcom Cemetery when one of his workers came rushing into the maintenance office, telling him to come quickly. The worker led Ephraim to a pool of blood that was seeping into the sand. Nearby there were more splashes and drag marks in blood. A blood-soaked rag lay nearby. Ephraim told his workers not to touch the rag. 
he instinctively knew that the police would want it left alone. There was no evidence that a crime had taken place, but you didn't get that much blood without one ordinarily, so he hurried off to his office to phone the police. Another telephone call was being made to the police at that time. The report of an abandoned Peugeot 207 at a taxi rank in the CBD. Police officers arrived on the scene and ran the registration number. They secured the vehicle and asked a nearby security guard to watch it while they travelled to the registered owner's address. It had most likely been stolen in the night without the owner's knowledge, they thought. When a police car pulled into the Fun X driveway that Sunday morning, Henriette Fun X's first thought was that they were lost. She went outside in her dressing gown and slippers to meet them, and when she heard why they were there, her heart froze. She had thought nothing of the fact that Michael wasn't home, because he was due to have gone to work already. She was sure he must have come home during the night, and then left in the early hours for his shift at the mine. She grabbed the spare keys to his flat, and opened the security gate and door, only to find that Michael's bed had not been slept in. She called his boss, and was told that Michael had not arrived for work that morning. His boss also told Henriette that the last time he had seen Michael, he had been talking about meeting a girl in a graveyard. His boss says that he'd warned him that the arrangement sounded really strange, and Michael had agreed that he probably wouldn't go. Fear started to set in for Michael's parents, and they accompanied the police to the taxi rank to see Michael's car. In a ridiculous set of events which followed, when they arrived at Michael's vehicle, it was in the process of being stolen by a drunken one-legged man. The police arrested him, but while they were doing so, someone else tried to steal the Fun X vehicle, which was parked nearby. That theft was also thwarted. The drunken would-be thief was questioned, and it's emerged that he had nothing to do with Michael's disappearance. He'd just seen the car standing there with the keys in the ignition, and had wanted to use it to get home. With no sign of Michael, and traces of blood found on the door handle, a missing person's case was opened. While Michael's parents waited for a detective to be assigned to the case, they decided to go with their oldest daughter to the graveyard, to see if they could find anything there. On arrival, they soon saw the pool of blood that was now being protected as evidence by Ephraim's workers. Henriette came across what the men had thought was a bloodied rag, and without thinking, picked it up. Her screams echoed through the cemetery, as she realised that it was the T-shirt her son had been wearing the night before. As they waited for police to arrive, the Fun Eck family ran through the cemetery trying to find Michael, hoping beyond hope that he'd just been injured and was lying somewhere unconscious. Henriette would recall that, at one stage, she had paused over a piece of ground near the Jewish temple, feeling a deep pull to the area. 
as police units began to arrive at the cemetery. The family were asked to stand one side while they worked. Events unfolded very quickly after officers arrived on the scene and saw the amount of blood that was present, and a search dog was brought in to see if they could find Michael. While in other countries, search dogs are trained in different disciplines, and you'll have dogs that look for live people, and then others that look for cadavers. In South Africa, due to our limited resources, our search dogs are trained to look for any form of human scent. The dog and his handler did an initial sweep of the cemetery, and then came round again. This time, the dog alerted on an area near some gravestones in the Jewish section of the cemetery. The spot was covered by leaves and twigs, and a rough layer of soil. Police began to carefully remove the debris, doing their best not to disturb any possible evidence. In a shallow grave, they uncovered human remains, a naked torso with denim jeans still attached to the lower portion, a single leg and a single arm. The family, watching from a distance, realised that the police had found something and Michael's dad approached. He was stopped by a police officer who told him that he didn't think it was a good idea for him to see what they had found. Michael's dad was insistent. He wanted to try and identify the body, if it was his son. He had to know. Nas van Eck would identify his son by his severed leg. He knew his child so well that the appearance of the leg, as well as the small birthmark on the calf, was enough for him to know that this was Michael. He turned and walked towards his wife and daughter, about to share the news with them that would change their lives forever. Soon after the discovery, the investigating officer arrived on the scene. Detective Warren's officer, Hindrina Nal, was nicknamed Urchis by her colleagues. She had 20 years' experience in the police force, and although she wouldn't know it to begin with, she was ideally suited to this case, being the only officer in her department who'd received training in crimes of an occult nature. She introduced herself to Michael's now grieving family and gave them her condolences. They had one thing to say to her, find the person who did this. A forensic team came in to carefully remove Michael's remains from the shallow grave without disturbing evidence, and the next task was to find the rest of his body. The search dog was sent out on another scan of the area, but on picking up Michael's scent, led his handler straight back to the entrance of the graveyard and then lost the trail. Initial thoughts were that it could be a Mootsy murder, and if so, the rest of the remains may no longer be on site. Detective Null had a strong feeling that this was not a Mootsy murder, though. The organs that are usually taken for moody purposes, the heart and genitals, were still there. Also nearby, police had found a blanket and glasses, an empty condom packet and several beer bottles. Wanting to make 100% sure that the rest of Michael's remains were not buried somewhere nearby, Detective Nell 
called in Donnie Kruegel. Kruegel had built a machine, which he called the Kruegel Theory Tester. The machine used DNA samples of missing people to find their remains by using what he referred to as quantum vibrations. Essentially, he believed that the machine, when introduced to a piece of DNA, could search an area and match the unique energy vibrations that a person's DNA gave off to a place where their remains were buried. Although he'd used the machine in several high-profile cases, including the Madeleine McCann disappearance, the Lee Matthews case, and the Gert van Rooyen kidnappings, he'd actually only once had any success with the machine, and that was in a case of a Pakistani gang who was killing its members. He'd identified a spot, which months later turned out to be a mass grave containing the missing victims. The police community were not entirely convinced that Kruegel's machine had any merit, but they were certainly willing to give it a try. Kruegel would eventually lead police to a sewage plant nearby, in which he claimed Michael's remains had been dumped. On the flimsy possibility that anything could actually be in there, Detective Nell refused to put any of her officers through the nightmare of sifting through sewage until they had more evidence. Kruegel took offence to this and refused to carry on looking. The pathologist who was tasked with performing the autopsy on what remained of Michael van Eyck had, in a sad irony, also been the man who had delivered Michael at birth. He'd been the van Eyck's family doctor for decades and also a friend of the family. Just a few weeks before, he'd eaten dinner at the van Eyck home and chatted with Michael about his future and his new job. Now he had to perform an autopsy on his mutilated remains. Defensive wounds were found on Michael's hands, indicating that he'd put up a significant fight against his attacker. The removal of his legs had been carried out just below the knee. Besides the body parts that were clearly missing, the pathologist also found that one of Michael's neck vertebrae was missing. Detective Nell had requested Michael's cell phone records very soon after the missing persons case had been opened, as a matter of course. The last number he dialed would be an important person to talk to, but when she phoned the number, it was switched off. The investigation continued for the rest of Sunday and into Monday, with Detective Nell occasionally phoning the last dialed number on Michael's phone while she waited for records to be released that would put a name to the number. Eventually, on Tuesday morning, the 5th of April, the number rang. Nell was taken aback when a young girl answered. Her voice sweet and polite. She asked who was calling. Nell, using an old trick for police stings, told her that she was a doctor from Valcom Mediclinic and that a young woman had been in a car accident. She said that they'd found the cell phone number on the young woman's phone and would she mind coming in to identify the woman so that they could proceed with surgery. Shonae van Heerden would later claim that she knew something was fishy 
because she didn't have any female friends. Despite this, she told Nell that she was just at the shop, and we will be there shortly. The reference to we didn't slip past Detective Nell. Nell rushed out to the Valcom Mediclinic, placing plainclothes officers at the door and informing the receptionist about the sting operation. Within ten minutes of her arrival, a young couple walks through the door. Shanae was wearing a red jacket with the hood pulled up over her head and black tracksuit pants. Her long black hair was pulled into a tight bun. Martin's Fandamava clung to Shanae's hand as though his life depended on it. Detective Nile approached the couple and started to explain the reality of the situation. There was no accident victim, but she wanted to talk to them about a murdered man. If she'd expected the couple to freak out at being caught and perhaps try and run, their reaction was quite the opposite. Shanae quite calmly told Detective Nell that she knew why they were there, and if she could just have a moment to chat to Martins, she would tell Nell everything she wanted to know. Nell declined to allow the couple to speak privately, of course, and instead arrested them and placed them in two separate police cars. Shanae directed Nell to their flat, and if the seasoned detective thought that she'd seen the worst this pair had to offer, she was about to discover how wrong she was. The flat was clean, but officers on the scene would later report immediately feeling uneasy there. The walls were adorned with self-portraits, painted by Charnay. In them, she depicted herself in various horrific expressions. In some, she looked like an alien. In others, she had no eyes. Still others showed her mouth stitched closed. The young girl wordlessly led Nell to the refrigerator, where she opened the freezer section and pulled out two packets of frozen vegetables. Between the two packets was a white object wrapped in cling film, which Nell thought was a pizza base. Shanae carefully placed it on the counter and unwrapped it. She looked at Nell and said, His face. A collective gasp came up from those present as Nell realised that she was looking at an expertly skinned human face. The eyelids were missing, leaving gaping holes where the eyes should have been. The lips had been stitched closed. While all present tried to compose themselves, Shanae reached back into the fridge and pulled out two containers. His eyes, she said, placing the first container on the table. His ears she commented about the second container. At that moment, a few officers left the flat, not wanting to contaminate the scene with their very human reaction to the revolting discovery. One officer hissed at Charnay that she was sick. The girl looked back at the officer, expressionless. As they searched the flat, Michael's belongings were discovered his wallet and glasses. They also found journals belonging to Charnay 
in which she wrote a poem, including the line, I will rip off their faces to reveal the truth. Charnay pointed to a container on top of the fridge labelled The Spawn of Our Prostitution. It contained the money that they'd stolen from Michael, his first withdrawal from his salary. Martins piped up, saying that they'd spent some of it to buy spades for next time because it was really difficult to dig a hole with spoons. This arrogance and cockiness from Martins would be an ongoing theme while they were at the flats at that time, as well as when they brought him back there later. On one occasion, he told police that he was really disappointed in them because no one was watching him and he could be interfering with important evidence. When one of the officers had asked him to keep quiet, Martins had remarked that they should remember that just because they couldn't see the deceased didn't mean he wasn't standing in the room with them. In containers in the bedroom, the police found the scalps of the cats that the couple had killed. When asked where the rest of Michael's remains were, Charnay looked at Martin's and told him to show them. He led police to their small yard, in which three plastic bags were discovered, containing the rest of Michael's body, as well as three dead cats. As police photographers documented the scene, Martin seemed to be quite enjoying the attention and smiled for photos. Before leaving the flat, Charnay grabbed two jackets. Nell thought nothing of it at the time, assuming she was just making sure they'd be warm enough in the cells. It would later emerge, though, that those two jackets had pulls stitched into the seams and that the couple had prepared this option in case they were caught so that they could commit suicide. Charnay soon realised that Martins wasn't going to go along with the suicide plan, so she didn't either. As they were getting ready to transport Charnay and Martins back to the police station to book them in, Charnay's father arrived. He'd been alerted about the goings-on at his daughter's flat and initially flew into an indignant rage against the police, demanding that they let his daughter go. When Null explained to the man what his daughter was accused of doing, all colour drained from his face, and he stood staring at his child, as though he was seeing her for the first time. He asked Charnay if she had done what they were accusing her of, and she replied, quote, It was something I've wanted to do since I was three years old. I wanted to do it, I did it, and I would do it again. End quote. With that, Charnay's father stepped back from the police vehicle and let them take his daughter. Charnay agreed to tell them everything, but instructed them to make sure they listened carefully and paid attention because she wasn't going to repeat herself and she wasn't there for their entertainment. The couple was taken back to the police station and booked in. Noel went home that night with a sense of achievement, but also a chilling feeling that this was just the beginning. Detective Noel, who rarely even suffered from a headache, 
was struck down by a blinding migraine that night and struggled to sleep. She dragged herself back to work the next morning, feeling terrible, but knowing that crucial parts of the investigation awaited her. She walked into the holding cell area and noticed that something was wrong. A crowd of officers was gathered around the cell in which Shanae was being held. At some time during the night, with an unknown implement, Shanae had cut her thighs open, and she now sat on a bench with deep cuts in her skin and blood dripping from the incisions. On the wall behind her, she'd written, in her own blood, along came a girl. Nell entered the cell, feeling nauseous as the smell of blood combined with her now fading migraine hit her stomach. She asked Shanae if she was okay, and the girl smiled. She then wordlessly pointed to something on the floor in front of Detective Nell's feet. Nell described it as a piece of white bread with a human head hair tied around it. It immediately struck her as something voodoo-like, and she recognised the hair as looking suspiciously like her own. She looked at Shanae, and the girl asked her, Did you sleep well, detective? Nell steadied herself and shot back, You will never beat me, and left the cell. Shanae told the story of what she and Martins had done, as though she were reciting something she'd read in a book. She explained how her and Martin's fantasies had led up to them deciding to kill a person, and how they had lured Michael van Eyck. It emerged that on Monday, after they'd rested, Shanae spent several hours skinning Michael's face from his skull. Martin's had videotaped their entire event so that they could watch it again later. Shanae's brutal honesty about what she'd done surprised police, but more so, it was her complete lack of any emotion or regret that struck them. Martin's, when separated from Shanae, became less arrogant, and when his mother visited him, Nell said he suddenly seemed like a little boy again. The community of Valcom reeled at the news of this horrific crime and although they were grateful that police had arrested the offenders so quickly, many, including Michael's parents, believed that they could not be the only ones involved. Shanae was so tiny, and Martins didn't seem strong enough to have taken Michael down himself. The logistics of the crime had also confused the public, before they understood that the couple had used Michael's car to transport his remains. Both Shanae and Martins were charged with murder, robbery, and mutilation of a corpse. Due to Martins' schizophrenia, he was sent for a mental health evaluation. He would eventually be sent for three evaluations. The first found that he was unfit to stand trial. The second found that he was fit to stand trial, but that his mental health had played a role in the crime and therefore he could not be held criminally responsible. And the third evaluation set aside all of this, and it was decided that he was fit to stand trial 
and that his schizophrenia had not played a role in his crime. I'll be honest, I found this a bit odd, as it almost seemed as though the state's kept sending him back for evaluations until they got the result they wanted. Looking at the evidence, I don't think that Martin's schizophrenia caused him to commit the murder, and many experts would testify to this as well. These evaluations took a very long time to be carried out, so in the interim, the trial against Shanae van Heerden started. Perhaps not surprisingly, Shanae pleaded guilty to all three charges, as, honestly, she would have had no defence for a not guilty plea. She refused on several occasions to be interviewed by forensic psychologists, including Gerard Labaskachny, remarking that she was not their lab rat. A rather ironic statement from someone who used living beings in her own experimentations. Shanae would speak to a forensic social worker who was appointed to her case, and she would eventually agree to speak to Professor Dup Lowe from the University of the Free State. Lowe is a world-renowned forensic psychologist with many years' experience. He managed to get Shanae to attend an interview by telling her that Martins would be there too. That was all it took. Shanae's trial began in November of 2011. She refused to take the stand in her own defence, and a statement was read out on her behalf. Whether the wording of the statement was misleading or not, the way it came across was that their intention had been to rob Michael, which we know was not the case at all. Both Shanae and Martins had admitted to police that the robbery had only been an afterthought and not the motive for the crime. A psychiatrist and a social worker testified that Shanae had told them, quote, I know that I should feel guilty for what I did, because everyone says I should. Everyone expects it from me. I try to feel guilt, but I can't. End quote. Several expert witnesses would testify that they believed that Shanae should be treated as a serial killer. Although this was her first murder, the nature of the crime and her own admissions meant that there was a very good chance, if she was released, she would kill again, to continue fulfilling her fantasy. Shanae admitted to many people outright that if she was released, she would kill again. She said that the murder and the skinning she had performed had actually been disappointing for both her and Martins. They'd expected to feel the thrill that all serial killers spoke about in the books she'd read. But although there'd been an element of enjoyment, they'd really felt very little. There had been no high and no jolt of satisfaction. She admitted that within hours of killing Michael, She'd already started thinking about ways she could do things differently the next time around, in order to achieve that elusive thrill. Gerard Labaskachny would say in the episode of the podcast Profiler Africa that covered this case, This is the basis of how the violent fantasy perpetuates continuous killing in many serial killers. They're constantly trying to recreate their fantasy each time they kill 
so that they can achieve the excitement they seek. With every murder, they slightly change up the way they do things, hoping to get it right, and with each disappointment, they set their minds on the next time. It's believed that if they hadn't been caught, Charnay and Martins would have killed again within a few months of Michael's death. Another disturbing event emerged during the investigation when Charnay and Martins admitted that they'd become engaged on the day after the murder. They'd even taken Charnay's dad out for dinner so that Martins could ask his permission to marry his daughter. The man, none the wiser, had eagerly agreed, as he hadn't seen his daughter so happy in a long time. The social worker agreed that the couple would without a doubt continue killing if they were released. She also described the pair as dangerous and disturbed enough on their own, but when they came together, it was a disaster. As was expected, much was made during the trial of the occult involvement in the crime. Several experts testified that despite the public outcry and satanic panic that had emerged, there was absolutely no evidence that the couple were involved in Satanism. The American leader of the modern Church of Satan even weighed in on this case to provide clarification. The man, who goes by the name Satan, spelt C-E-Y-T-I-N, stated that if the couple had thought they were following any form of Satanism, then they were more deluded than anyone thought. He cited the 11 rules that Satanists live by, which include not harming any living being. Other experts on the occult agreed that there was too much evidence of conflicting symbolism for them to say that any single branch of the occult had played a role in the murder. The rituals and activities that the pair undertook were mainly invented by them to tie in with their own fantasies. They literally created a world of their own, which they called Ashmore Valley, by the way. They were rulers of this world, and Charnay claimed that when they slept, they could teleport their spirits to this world and meet there. Experts disagreed on whether Charnay could be diagnosed as a psychopath or with antisocial personality disorder, which is often a degree of psychopathy on its own. Professor Lowe stated that while Charnay had many traits of both psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, in his opinion, they were not significant enough to diagnose her. Two other experts, however, reported that they would diagnose her with both, and Gerard Labaskachny stated in his podcast episode that she had been diagnosed with both. Professor Lowe did state that never in his career had he seen a person who had shown such a distinct difference in the person she showed the outside world and her true identity. If Charnay had not admitted her guilt and been caught with the evidence, I really think that there would be many people that refused to accept her guilt to this day. Professor Lowe also interviewed Martins, and he made brief mention of his findings during Charnay's trial when he spoke about their interaction as a couple. 
He said that something he found quite odd was that usually serial killer couples will have a parasitic relationship, where one is extremely dominant and the other is more submissive, and the interaction leads to the breakdown in both parties rather than a building up. This relationship, though, was completely mutualistic. Each looked after the other and allowed their respective fantasies to be played out. There was no breaking down of one party, but rather through their union, they were both stronger. I guess if you were talking about a normal relationship, that scenario would be ideal. But in this situation, it became catastrophic. Of course, there's no way to tell what would have happened over time. Lowe believed that their relationship would not have lasted very long, because people with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathic features are unable to continue long-term relationships. Interestingly, texts were found from Martin's to Charnay, joking about him killing her. So we have to wonder if that could have been one possible outcome. Professor Lowe also commented that Martin's had also shown traits of psychopathy. But while Charnay's traits were inherent in her personality, Martin's came out in his behaviour. This was an important distinction to make in terms of the possibility of rehabilitation and the understanding of motive. Charnay's disordered actions were as a result of ingrained personality features, which one cannot change. Martin's actions, on the other hand, seemed incongruent with his personality. All experts agreed that Charnay had very little hope of complete rehabilitation. The reason that the state was pushing this narrative was that they wanted Charnay to be declared a dangerous criminal in terms of Section 286A of the Criminal Procedure Act. This declaration would mean that, although Charnay would be given a specific number of years attached to her sentence, she would not be allowed to apply for parole, nor would she be automatically freed at the end of the specified period. Instead, she would have to reappear in court, and the judge would then pass judgment as to whether she could be freed or whether a further sentence would be imposed. It's essentially a sentence without a firm end. It was for this reason that Charnay van Heerden was not given a life sentence. Instead, she was given 20 years for the murder and 15 years for the robbery and mutilation charges to be served concurrently. In 20 years, she will have to appear in court again and a judge will decide whether she's fit for release. Charnay van Heerden was the first female in South Africa to be declared a dangerous criminal. She showed absolutely no emotion as the court read her sentence and she was walked down to start serving her time. The trial of Martins van der Merwe eventually started after he'd completed his third mental health evaluation. He also pleaded guilty, but chose to take the stand in his own defence. He claimed that he remembered very little about the crime and that he'd only realised he'd killed someone a few days after the event. 
Martins was extremely arrogant and verbally aggressive towards the prosecutor, occasionally telling the man that he didn't feel he was qualified to be asking him questions about the occult or Satanism. Martins stated that he'd been looking for meaning in life when he researched different religions and occult practices, and that he'd hoped that by murdering someone, he would gain a greater understanding of life and death. He admitted, though, that he'd gained no special knowledge or great moment of understanding from the murder, and it had all really been quite underwhelming. He said that his fantasy had only been to kill, and much of the other rituals and events that occurred around the murder were down to Charnay's desires. Martins did claim to feel remorse and apologised to the Van Eyck family. During the hearing, Michael's mother took the stand, and she read a letter that her husband had written. It started out as a letter from Mr. Van Eyck, but it soon became evident that he'd written most of the letter from Michael's perspective, as though the deceased was sitting in court, talking to his murderer. The moment was described as extremely powerful, and Martins had broken down into sobs after this testimony. Professor Lowe would later testify that he had asked Martins after that if he could give him two wishes, what would he ask for? Martins had said that his first wish would be that he'd never been born, and his second wish would be that he could die and go to heaven to see Michael and ask his forgiveness. When asked if he thought that Martins van would kill again if released, Professor Lowe gave evidence about the extremely rare nature of the crime. When he was writing his report, he contacted international experts all over the world to see if they had seen a case such as this in their countries and to learn from their experiences. He learned that the murder of Michael van Eyck was only the tenth such case recorded in international criminal history. It was due to this rarity and lack of research on which to base his decision that Lowe said that if he were to judge Martin solely on his own actions and not in the context of his relationship with Charnay, he felt that there was a possibility for rehabilitation. The risk remains, of course, that Martins will end up in another relationship where his murderous desires are fed. And while that may seem an almost impossible set of odds, him meeting someone like Charnay seemed entirely unlikely too. Martins van was sentenced to life plus 15 years. He will have to serve at least half of that sentence before he is allowed to apply for parole. As Martins walked down the stairs to be imprisoned, Michael's mother launched herself out of her seat and smacked the man on his bald head as he descended the stairs. Police officers calmly continued to lead him down the stairs, and only Henriette's husband made an attempt to restrain her. Martins didn't react. He just took it and carried on walking. Charnay and Martins continued to write to each other until 2014, when Charnay broke off their relationship, saying that she felt that they'd both changed a lot. 
Shona is studying theology and teaches art to her fellow inmates. She is considered a model prisoner. Martin's got his matric certificate while in prison and also plans to study further. While Shonet may have been behaving well in prison, the world inside her had clearly not become any less dark. In 2017, an American called Eric Holler, who is a collector of true crime memorabilia and runs a website called Serial Killer Inc., revealed in an article that he had a letter as well as a sketch from Shanae that she had specifically written and drawn for him while behind bars. Interestingly, Holler claims to have known Shanae online before she committed her crime, which I guess could have happened due to her interest in serial killers. The four-page handwritten letter from Shanae centers around her naming her favorite bands, horror movies, and serial killers including Richard Ramirez and Albert Fish. She talks a bit about religion, specifically Christianity, and her reasons for not agreeing with it. She touches on her crime and mentions Martin's Fandamava. The letter is signed Shanae, a.k.a. Mallory Knox. The drawing that she did for Holler is a picture of a zombie-type woman clawing at her own stomach and pulling her entrails out. Of Shanae, Hollis says, quote, She's been very kind to us and is quite gorgeous, but I wouldn't want to be on the business end of a knife that she was brandishing. End quote. Even he admits, from his interactions with her both before and after her crime, that he believes that she was definitely a serial killer in the making. For a lot of this episode, you would have been forgiven for thinking you'd accidentally tuned into a paranormal podcast. I included those details because I really think it adds to the story. But honestly, I could have told the story without them, and nothing would have changed about the reality of the crime. I'm sure others will have different opinions about this, but I cannot allow Shanae van Heerden or Martins van der Merwe the excuse of something having controlled their behaviour other than their own choice. I'm a pretty open-minded person, and I certainly don't profess to know or understand everything that exists in this world of ours. Is it possible that Shanae van Heerden has had some sort of connection to the other side throughout her life? and evil elements that may or may not exist in the world? Yes, I guess it is possible. But it also makes absolutely no difference, in my opinion. She's a very dangerous person, and that danger doesn't just lay in her actions. It lays in her ability to pretend that she's completely normal. And she did that. No one else. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that if she hadn't met Martin's Fanamava, she would still have committed murder. Her fantasy was to skin, and you can't skin without also killing. I'd like to hope that this case is a flash in the pan, and just some horrendous crossing of paths that led to the most perfectly horrific pairing. But really, 
we don't know that it is. We would be remiss to think that these two people are the only two in the world who held these dark fantasies and somehow found each other. They are out there. People who show one reality to the world and hide a far darker reality inside them. Could this have been avoided? I don't really know that it could. There's really nothing that we can point to to say if this didn't happen or that didn't happen, then Michael van Eck would still be alive. Perhaps Michael wouldn't have been the victim under different circumstances, but someone would have been. There's very little doubt about that. Thankfully, we have the guarantee that Shanae van Heerden will have little chance of getting out of prison any time soon. But according to Gerard Labaschachny, Martins van der Merwe might be allowed to apply for parole in the next two to three years. Shanae was not controlling Martins, although he claimed that a lot of what he did was to please her. She didn't force him to do anything. He admitted that he wanted to kill, and having a partner who wanted the same thing just made it easier. If Martins van der Merwe is released, I really hope that someone's keeping an eye on his next relationship. We've spent an awful lot of time in this episode discussing the perpetrators. So, as we end the episode, let's leave them in their cages where they belong and move on to the person that really matters here, Michael van Eyck. Michael's family has never been the same. His parents have struggled within their marriage and his sister's relationships have also been impacted. His nieces and nephews miss their uncle, and Henriette Fanek says that everyone and everything is now different. There's no more joy that is not tinged by the loss of Michael. In closing off, I'd like to read the letter that Michael's father wrote on behalf of his son. Remember that this was read as though Michael were reaching out and speaking from the grave. In the time that you slaughtered and mutilated little animals, I prepared myself for my future so that I could be proud of myself and have a family of my own. In the time that you planned your first murder, I studied proudly and obtained my N2, N3 and N4 certificates and qualified as an electrician. After a long struggle to find work, I studied further, as it was my goal to become an engineer. My parents were proud of me when I got my first job as an electrician at the Goldfields plant. By then, you'd probably already planned my murder. You were very proud of yourselves, but couldn't let anybody share in your achievement. I was well on my way to being happy when you managed to fool me. You did so because I trusted my fellow man. It was easy for you to lure me to the graveyard where you overpowered me and brutally killed me. Did you know what was going through my mind when you repeatedly penetrated me with your knives? My screams of pain, shock and fear were too much for you as I lay there helpless and endured your cruel, merciless torture. At least, finally death stepped in. 
and then you would go on to cut me up and behead me. After that, you chucked me away in a shallow grave, like trash that meant nothing to anyone. You went on to mutilate my face. You had to pierce my lips with a needle so that you could stitch them shut to use my face as a mask for your own entertainment. You thought that you would get away with murder, but those that cared about me and loved me searched for me and found me. My father knew me so well that even though he was so shocked by what he saw, he could still tell by my back and severed leg that it was me. For my family, life after the 2nd of April 2011 was terribly difficult, and they had to try to deal with my death. You had mutilated me to such an extent that they couldn't even look at me one last time to bid me farewell. I'm not just a face on a photo, a grave in a graveyard. There were the most wonderful memories of me and my family together. But after everything, my family is still as proud of me and loves me just as much. That you could not take away from me. And where are you now? Are your parents still proud of you? Do they still love you as much as before? Do they boast about this feat that you've achieved? Now is the last time that you can say, I'm proud of what I've done. You are a weakling because you cannot even admit to the gruesome deed that you've done. No, you're hiding behind your girlfriend, who supposedly influenced you the day you murdered me. I plead to this court that the highest punishment possible will be imposed, with no chance of parole, so that you can feel and think about what you did for the rest of your life. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to episode 26, The Murder of Michael Fynek. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. While I would usually release full cases only every second week, during lockdown I'm doing my best to release a full case every week. So keep an eye out for our next episode. As always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.